And welcome to the human side of healthcare, Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. And we're going to talk to you today on the human side of healthcare about art in health. And you may say, art in health? Well, we've got an expert to be talking about this subject. He's Dr. John Hawker, a board-certified specialist in internal medicine and cardiovascular diseases. And he's a cardiologist on the Texas Health Dallas medical staff and a member of the Texas Health Physicians Group. Welcome, Dr. Hopper. We're glad to have you. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. You know, when we think of this topic, arts and health, how is arts and health defined, or how does it affect us from a mental, physical, or spiritual aspect as individuals? Well, we work off the World Health Organization definition of health, which is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. It's not just merely the absence of disease or infirmity. We're not looking just for a technical answer to a problem, but trying to work with the entire person to heal the whole person. And that's the definition we use of arts and health. So when you look at the arts and health, when did Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas begin this journey of arts and health? And why did you do it? Well, independently, there were four different programs at least working. Art programs, dance, music therapy, and then literature and medicine, which I've been involved with for many years. We felt that in December of 2018, there would be advantage in putting these programs together, coordinating their efforts, doing it all under one umbrella, also looking for funding and ways that we could make this incorporated into the daily work of our hospital. It's important to know that when we're talking about arts and health, we're not just talking about the health of patients. This is also for physicians, nurses, caregivers throughout the hospital. They need this support of arts as well. When we talk about arts, it's a broad topic. It can be art itself, music, dance, sculpture, literature, many, many different things. I was going to say we know that some of these things can actually improve outcomes in patients. It can shorten hospital stays, reduce pain, improve cognition, and it it may promote the health across their entire lifespan. So these are the reasons we're doing it. You know, it's fascinating as I hear you talk about the art, the dance, the literature and medicine, the sculpture, how it not only impacts the patients, but the physicians and the staff. And I was kind of thinking, you know, as we're going through this COVID-19 problem and people are staying at home, you know, they get cabin fever. Could any of this art, dance, literature be adapted where people could do some at home? I was just kind of thinking out loud. Do you think there's a way to connect that? I think there is. There's a beautiful article by... Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee talking about Anton Chekhov and Chekhov's life. Chekhov was both a physician and a writer, a world-famous writer. He talked about in his existence in Moscow and later in Sakhalin Island how there was a social numbness. There was so much going on in the world that was bad that it was overwhelming. Very applicable to what we may all feel today. In in a beautiful essay, uh, Mukherjee talked about this and said, what is the only way we can treat anesthesia or numbness and he says it's anesthesia and it's beauty and we have to look to beauty to help us get through these times and 
I've sat, and, I've sat myself and reflected and sitting listening to Barber's Adagio, reading my favorite book, looking impressionist art. These things are a way through the numbness we feel in our society, both for the physicians, nurses, healthcare workers, and people in general. So I cannot think of a more appropriate time for people to be utilizing this, Steve. That's amazing. In terms of art and art therapy and dance and dance therapy, hopefully most of our listeners understand that. But can you expand a little bit on the importance of literature in medicine? Yes, I, I have been impressed as a young boy how important it was to read about medicine. We think that medicine is basically a communication skill. We have to listen to our patient. To, to paraphrase William Carlos Williams, every patient has a story to tell, and they want you to hear it. But then we have to communicate back to the patient. And we as a physician are do, doing that, physicians are doing that less well. And we think, therefore, that we have to come up with a way to intersect really good medicine with good communication skills, and literature is a great way to do that. We have the opportunity to use the synthetic and expressive genius of other people that have come before us. As a quick example, I was trying to explain to a wife of a patient who had had a 12-week hospital course, was near death for many weeks. She came back to me and said, John, thank you, but you were so serious the whole time. And I could have explained about intensive care units and Presser agents and Apache scores, but instead there was a line from poetry from Antonio Machado, and that line is, the sound of a coffin hitting the earth is a sound utterly serious. And she went, oh. And the beauty of that was somebody else had done the hard work for me, and by reading it, I could use that, and in a few words, expressed far better and far more clearly than I could have in 20 minutes of talking. Wow, that's uh, that's really an example uh, that that kind of sticks with you in the seriousness of it. Thank you for giving that example. You know, when you think in terms of arts, humanities, in medicine, and how you're describing how it's used, how receptive have North Texans been to arts and health in this initiative thus far? I think we would have to say very receptive. We've had focus groups among. 2,700 active volunteers, and a large proportion of them indicated a great willingness to be involved in this, and about 60% suggested they would be willing to give financially to do this. Our literature and medicine program has been very well attended, usually between 200 and 250 people a year. We have a writing contest and have had entries from all around the world. We have juried awards in short stories, essays, and poems, and people keep calling and asking when our next meeting is. So I think that people understand the value in this, and we have a yearly schedule we've worked out now. Uh, Catherine McDonald has been a driving force in this, along with Dr. Anna Sang and Susan Miracle, and we have monthly concerts in our lobby. We have the um, Nutcracker Suite in December. We have our Literature and Medicine meeting in October. So there's a real want out there in the in the world for us to go forward with this. You know, as as you were just talking, and, and I was thinking, what what a great program in the acute care setting. But this would really work post-acute as well. I can, I can only imagine in some of the post-acute settings how this would really be the arts and humanities that especially people, say, in skilled nursing facilities could really enjoy, and it would be inspirational. Your thoughts on that? Totally agree, and I think it will be inspirational, but there's good evidence that it also has medical benefit. 
people with movement disorders like Parkinsonism can learn to dance and they have much better control of their body dancing than they do with other activities. Post-stroke patients can learn to sing even if they can't speak well. These are real valuable tools for people as they recover from illnesses. And it is such a time of isolation when you're recovering from an illness. And one of the thoughts we have in literature and medicine is a patient is saying, I need you. And our response as healthcare workers has to be, I'll never leave you. So coming to them after the acute illness, staying with them during their recovery can be a real memorable and important moment for them. And quite frankly, for those of us that give healthcare as well. You know, as you mentioned that and talking about isolation, uh, our hearts go out to some of these COVID-19 patients and you hear the stories and, and you certainly work in healthcare on the front lines and see it. How many of these COVID-19 patients have been isolated, obviously for health reasons, but nonetheless, the point you gave about how you relate to your caregivers is so important. Let me, let me ask you this, Texas Health Dallas, how do you determine which arts and health and activities to implement? We have a regular, at least monthly meeting where we have about 35 people come who have come voluntarily without reimbursement for their time. And we sit around and talk about what things that would be valuable. What is there literature to support that it, it's useful and scientifically valid? What do they have an interest in and what do we think we could do to spread the, the desire here. We've been impressed, Steve, as we do this. People will come up and say, oh, I'm so glad you're doing this. Could we be a part of it? That's why the committee has gotten so large. But we then vote on what we think would be valuable arts and health roadmap items. We come out with a, a schedule for the year. For instance, the University of North Texas Music Department is now coming once a month to have a concert in our lobby. We have uh, Voches 8, which is a world-famous acapella group that came last year will be coming back this year all these things is are what we're doing and people seem to want to be involved in a very deep level well dr harper we could talk for hours on this this is such a fascinating topic but our time is running out but we want to thank you for explaining to us about arts and health and the good work you're doing and thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me i really do appreciate it Dr. Harper, this is Thomas Miller. Let me ask you a couple of more questions here for our podcast. Thanks for sticking around. One is, how would people in North Texas get a hold of you to find out more? We have a website about, called literatureandmedicine.com or through the, uh, the Presbyterian Foundation or THR Foundation. We have websites. And so if they would just Google in literature and medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Dallas, they can find out about it. And we we will get the information to them. A brochure will be coming out for our October 29th meeting with Dr. Jack Coulihan, one of the real emeritus poets and writers who's going to come and be our speaker in October at Presbyterian Dallas. I know medicine is driven by science, and yet I also know that doctors just sometimes have a hunch. You can just smell it or feel it or sense it. In this area, arts and humanities in medicine, have there been any studies and what kind of feelings and senses do you get? Can you take both sides of that question? Yes, I agree with the concept entirely. The name of our literature and medicine meeting is called Intersections, Evidence-Based Medicine Meeting Compassion at the Bedside. It's where we need good science, 
but that's often not enough. There, you need both to be sufficient. We define compassion as, I do, I've used lots of different dictionaries, is the sympathetic awareness of another person's distress coupled with a sincere desire to alleviate it. And we try to bring those two together at the bedside. And the authors we bring in the literature we talk about often help us do that through examples. And we don't have to live the horrible things that people have to live through to learn from it. And that's one of the beauties of great literature. Do you have a touching story from a patient that was really touched by this? Well, let me give you the one that caused me to get involved with, and it was my father. Uh, I grew up in West Texas, a little town called Pecos, and my dad was my hero, and I thought he was invulnerable. He'd been a professional basketball player, big, strong fellow. He developed an illness that made him cry out in pain at night, and he, my mom would get up and call the local general practitioner and say, Bruce, could you send something out? But rather than sending something out, about 10 minutes later, at 3.30 in the morning, he'd show up at the house dressed in a three-piece suit, his hair combed, carrying a black bag. He would come in and greet me, greet my sister and my mom, and put his hand on my dad's shoulder, say, Frank, it's okay. I'm here now, and I'm going to stay till you're better. And then he would. And for a young man looking at careers, I saw that black bag as science. The fact that he was willing to get dressed, sit with my father till he was better is compassion. And I thought it was a beautiful blend of the things that make medicine a really a noble art if practiced well. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. And bring it into today's culture of medicine, which is so driven by mandates from insurance companies or mandates from CMS or uh, just struggling to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera. How do you balance that today? How do you make that happen in today's medical environment? It is a struggle. I work with our medical residents who are fine, brilliant young people, many of whom don't have as much general education as we would expect, and try to let them understand that there is much more to medicine than simply learning the science. It's an exploding amount of science, and it's, it's daunting to do that. And many of them will say, I don't have time for this, Dr. Harper. My argument is you don't, it is impossible not to have time. And I quote John Stone, a magnificent poet, cardiologist at Emory University, the late John Stone. Someone asked him how he was able to write such beautiful, beautiful poetry while he ran a cardiology department at a major academic university. His answer was itself beautiful. He said, I write in the crevices of time. And I encourage these doctors to make time in their life to do these things because it will give them the pleasure of medicine far out of proportion to any paycheck they get or any scientific diagnosis they make. It has to be both to get the most out of medicine. And then I, I usually quote them a benediction, which I, I did initially with trepidation, but they have uh, really taken to. It's a variation on Thessalonians. It's now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to that which is good. Honor all men and women, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and may the grace of God go with you. And regardless of your faith background, that is a powerful statement about what medicine is supposed to be. And a number of the young residents have come up and said, Dr. Harper, how do you have courage? How do you honor all men and women? And it leads to wonderful discussions because none of us is bright enough or knowledgeable enough to have all the answers. But discussing it is the first step towards them doing it. 
this little snapshot in time that we're in, people are staying home and libraries are closed. Obviously, the Internet, plethora of information. If somebody wanted to implement some of this in their life right now, where would they start? Well, I think that I've got a book list of about 70 books and poems and things that I think are important. I think oftentimes going back and revisiting a book that you loved most as you grew up would be a way to do it. There are lists on there of great literature and medicine. Uh, I've read uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips by Hilton a dozen times. I cry every time I finish it. Uh, the Art of Hearing Heartbeats by Jean-Philippe Senker is a beautiful book. It's not a cardiology text, but it's a beautiful book about how we have to listen better and hear more deeply. It's a story of a blind uh, young boy in Burma and a young woman with deformed feet, and they form a symbiotic relationship where she rides on his shoulders, and he serves as the feet, and she serves as the eye, and his hearing becomes so acute that he can discern how someone is thinking and believing by the sound of their heartbeat. It's a little apocryphal, but it's a beautiful story. Finding something like that to start is just a great way to do it. Excellent. This has been very touching. Thank you so much for taking the time to to enlighten us to this and make us aware of something that we probably otherwise never would have known was going on. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being with us, not only for our show, but for the podcast. And just keep up the good work. Thank you. Glad to help anytime, and I appreciate your uh, efforts today. You all stay safe.